Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is June 17, just ahead. What do the results from one of the biggest home builders tell us about the housing market? And why one grocery store chain might not be so worried about inflation? And a case study on how a regional bank can effectively compete with big money center banks and win. We are drilling down on Ocean First Bank with CEO Chris Mayer. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot And we hope you're listening to The Drill Down every day. You can make it a lot easier on yourself by hitting the subscribe button and follow us. And hey, leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It might draw some attention so other people can enjoy the fun as well. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Please welcome me. And joining, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. (laughs) I got a new toy, Isaac. I like that. Oh, I like that. What do you got? Three most important business stories of the day. All right. Let's start with uh, unemployment claims. Workers filing for initial unemployment benefits rose last week for the first time since late April, but they still remain near a pandemic low. Despite this increase, though, the four-week moving average, which smooths out week-to-week volatility, did reach a new pandemic low of 395,000. Now, this was the lowest average level since March 2020. And we all know what happened in March 2020. Thursday's claims report also showed that unemployment role, uh, unemployment rolls shrank last month. Yeah, I think we're going to keep an eye on what happens in the next, really the next month or two when some of the um, uh, enhanced unemployment benefits fade off the calendar. And we'll see what the economy uh, yields for those people. Now, number two, this is a story that we've been following here for about a month. Lordstown Motors Struggling electric vehicle startup, the company told securities regulators today that it did not have binding orders for pickup truck it was developing. This reverses statements made by its president just two days ago. Now, you may remember earlier this week, the company also announced the resignation of its chief executive and its chief financial officer. Yeah, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This company uh, has got some credibility to uh, establish uh, or reestablish with the world and they're not doing such a great job right now. You know, but when we talked about Lordstown a few weeks ago, you know, the big question there was who are these orders from? Let's show still a big show, question. Show me the names. All right. Now finally, the third most important business story of the day, cruise operator Carnival detecting unauthorized access to its computer systems back in March. 
Carnival says it alerted regulators at the time and hired a security firm to investigate the breach. The company was also hit by a ransomware attack last year. So, something to watch. Corey, what, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's take a look at Kroger. Kroger, KR, shares rose 4% today and they're higher by 19% in a year. What's new with Kroger? Which is to say they've vastly underperformed the market. But uh, I love the grocery business and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a fascinating business. My father worked in the food business. So I've, you know, I've, it's, it's, it's near and dear to my heart. I also like food. So, you know, there's that. But remember where we were a year ago, right? So they were, the company just reported earnings and, and so the comparisons over last year. Well, the grocery business was hit uh, like nothing ever before last year. Remember empty shelves, hoarding, wasn't just toilet paper, it was all the food products. I remember talking to a friend who um, took his family out of uh, Manhattan, raced out to uh, one of the Hamptons, East Hampton, Bridge Hampton, Rich Hampton, I don't know. Arrived there, went straight to the grocery store and grabbed anything he could off the shelves because he realized that they could be in it for a while. That was happening all over the country. And uh, when the company talked there about their earnings, and Kroger talked about their earnings uh, uh, most recently, well, the comparison was that scenario from a year ago and all that hoarding and all that uh, difficulty getting stuff and people buying everything off the shelves. Well, interestingly, this, the quarter they just reported was just about the same number of sales, $41.3 billion in sales in the quarter ending in May, uh, nearly the same as a year before. Although if you take out fuel, which they sell in some locations, it was about 4% less revenues. I looked up uh, the average U.S. gas price at the end of the quarter year over year. It was about 52% higher now. So fuel has helped them out this time around, but still not a big drop-off off of what they saw a year ago. And I thought, you know, most interestingly, the Kroger comments about inflation. So the CEO and the CFO talked on the call about what they're seeing and how their business works. Now, they said they're seeing inflation in the last quarter. They, they guided towards 1% to 2%, and they said it was on the low side of that, so let's call that 1%. But the CEO, Bill McMullen, he says that a little bit of inflation, a little bit more inflation, would be good for Kroger. Look, typically uh, our business operates the best when inflation is about 3 to 4%. And we have a, a, a meaningful amount of fixed costs and the, when inflation's at three to four percent, that gives you leverage on those costs. And uh, the inflation of three to four percent, customers don't uh, overly agra- uh, react to that inflationary environment either. So we we view a little bit of inflation as always good in our business, and we would expect to be able to pass that through uh, as well on things that are permanent in nature. So he actually thinks a little hotter inflation would be a good thing for this company. If you think about it. What he's really talking about is they've got fixed assets. They bought stores. They bought real estate. They've got um, a a cost in the ground. And that if prices go up, their return on that earlier investment kind of gets a little bit better. So they like a little bit of inflation over time as long as it doesn't get out of control and scare consumers away from buying stuff. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Lennar. Lennar, L-E-N, shares rose 3% today. They've gained 49% in a year. What did Lennar say? So Lennar reported a quarter, uh, again, uh, interesting quarter. Now, context, right? Three biggest residential home builders in order, D.R. Horton, Lennar, and Pulte. So as far as Lennar goes, uh, I want you to think about sort of how things compared to the last year. So they delivered 14,493 homes. It's up 14%. 
but their revenues were up 21%. So if you just think about it, right? If it's up 14, 14% more homes with 21% more revenue, why? Hmm. The house is more expensive. Yes, you're with me? I'm with you. I know it. Well, the profits, the profits were up 61%. And these guys were able to uh, use their vast purchasing power to maybe not overpay for lumber and other things that were really expensive in the quarter. They managed to hold down the prices of uh, labor during the, during that quarter. And just a fantastic uh, report from this company. Um, they talked about spinning off some units and getting rid of some investments. But uh, I thought one of the most interesting things was the CEO's conversation about why people are willing to pay so much more for homes right now. And he made the case that uh, the increasing housing prices is because of the increasing use of a home. And the homes have a different place in people's lives because of the pandemic. Here is Lennar's co-CEO, John Jaffe. Remember from a macro view that today the home is the hub of people's life, very different than it was in the past. So it's not just where they live, it's where they work, it's where they educate, it's where they rec recreate. And, you know, post-pandemic, that's still going to be the case for the large part. And therefore, people view the home as more valuable and will put a larger portion of their income towards that more important asset, the home. So oh, again, interesting notion of what's kind of driving this and their belief, at least, that it's going to continue to be the case. That argument makes a lot of sense to me. I and mean, we see it across all the other companies, right? When we look at Lowe's, when we look at Home yeah. Depot, when we look at Restoration Hardware, we look at all these companies that just saw these fantastic quarters, fantastic years, because people were at home and they mm -hmm. wanted that home to be better and they were willing to pay for it. Corey, what's your next drill down? I thought this would be a good day to take a look at Taiwan Semiconductor. Taiwan Semiconductor that trades under TSM. Shares rose 1% today, and they've gained 110% over the past 12 months. What's new with TSM? So uh, there was news today that a bipartisan group of senators uh, in the U.S. Um, proposed a new 25% investment tax credit for investments in the semiconductor manufacturing industry. Um, and they want to obviously have more chips made in this country with a shortage of all kinds of chips, would be largely because they are made overseas, including at Taiwan, in Taiwan, by Taiwan Semi, uh, the largest, uh, by some measure, largest uh, manufacturer of semiconductors in the world. Now, the proposal is bipartisan. So it's Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden and uh, uh, Republican Senator Mike Crapo, uh, who are as long as well as Mark Warner, John Cornyn, Debbie Stabenow, and uh, Steve Daines. So what they said in their statement is that they wanted a, quote, reasonable targeted incentive for domestic semiconductor manufacturing. Um, now, last week, the Senate voted 68 to 32 to approve spending $52 billion to increase U.S. production and R&D into semiconductors and telecom equipment, including $2 billion in, uh, dedicated to chips used by automakers. So I thought it was interesting, with that kind of in the wind, at the last conference call, the CEO of Taiwan Semi, C.C. Wei, had some interesting uh, comments about the fact that they're already in the U.S. and they're doing more in the U.S. And this kind of tax break, uh, I think, is the kind of thing that would have them do even more. Listen to what C.C. Wei had to say back at the end of the last quarter for Taiwan Semi. We have been in the U.S. for a long time, though. Uh, we set up a wafer tax that an eight-inch pipe located in upstate Washington back in 1996. And it's continued to operate and manufacture chips for our customer today. And now we are increasing our presence in the U.S. 
with an advanced turbine semiconductor fab in Arizona. And the progress is executing to our plan. And uh, we are happy that we are joining the effort to support semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. That says to me that Taiwan Semi um, may very well play in this long-term plan to get more semiconductor building happening here in the U.S. All right, well, up next, we're going to look at Ocean First. It's a regional bank. It's kind of crushing it when it comes to competition with the big money center banks. Uh, we're going to talk to the CEO, Chris Mayer. Really interesting conversation. Hope you enjoy this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. Right now, we're going to drill down on an interesting, very interesting regional bank uh, that bank called Ocean First, and its CEO, Chris Mayer, joins us right now. Uh, Chris, uh, where are you in New Jersey right now? So I'm in uh, Red Bank, New Jersey, so right along the shore, as our, as our name would suggest. Um, Ocean First, indeed. Um, talk to me about the history of this bank and, and the areas that you serve. Yeah, so the bank has a great and long history. We were uh, launched in 1902 and started out as the uh, Point Pleasant Building and Loan Association of Point Pleasant Beach, a bit of a mouthful. So uh, over the years, we kind of shortened that to the Ocean First Bank. But, you know, we started as a savings bank and uh, in 1996 went through a conversion to a publicly traded company and have built the bank since then. We serve um, New Jersey, obviously the New Jersey Shore. We also have expanded to serve uh, New York and Philadelphia as well. And uh, and over time, we expect to be expanding down and uh, further in the, the seaboard down to Baltimore. Those are very, very different markets. I mean, from metropolitan New York City to, you know, like you said, the Jersey Shore uh, uh, and and uh, just a very kind of different environment. What what specialty kind of you bring right through all those uh, with your 58 branches and all those places? You know, we are a, um, a diversified and, and uh, wide, uh, widely diverse company. So we offer consumer banking, commercial banking, but it's a relationship program where we're bringing a lot of different products to our customers. And the thing that would cut across our markets is the way we service and deliver those and providing the kind of breadth of products you would see at a large national bank uh, with the kind of service you would receive at a smaller uh, community bank or credit union. And, um, and that's what defines us. So we, it is a very different market, New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey, very different. Uh, but the commonality is the way we deliver those services and, and who we compete with. Um, so what's so is this? Are you focused more on businesses? Or are you focused more on individuals? So about two thirds of our business is commercial. So there's a little bit more focus on the commercial businesses. But our legacy, going back to 1902, is serving consumers, and we still continue to do that in a big way. In fact, last year was our uh, a record year for residential mortgage originations. And uh, many of our branches, um, you know, appeal to the consumers in our markets who would need to use them more frequently. And what are you seeing with that in that business right now? I mean, obviously, housing prices went have gone through the roof in the last year, particularly in your region. 
Yeah. You know, one of the things that came along with the pandemic is this seismic shift in the way people were looking at where they live and how they commute and how they go to work and all of that. And as a result, the bulk of our market sits about equidistant between New York and Philadelphia. So as folks looked for alternatives from the urban centers, we were the beneficiary of a significant amount of migration into our markets. So that, uh, that migration has been good for us, good for our company, and it provides us the opportunity to, um, to welcome new people into our market that have a longer-term connection with either New York or Philadelphia. What was the HELOC, the home equity business, like for you in the last year? You know, it was, it was not a very big business in the last year. And as people made these decisions to move, the first mortgage business was a much bigger business than the HELOC business. There weren't as many people, at least initially, doing um, kind of renovations or, or paying for large, um, large ticket purchases as they might in, in other kinds of environments. So HELOC was not that busy, but residential mortgage was, uh, I would characterize it as white hot. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly saw it. I, I spend my summers out in Long Island, or at least I did until I started this, the foolish idea of starting this podcast. Um, and we just saw an explosion in prices out there. I mean, you saw things going up, you know, 30% over the previous year and what had been kind of a tough market for the previous few years. What was it like down there? Is it fair for me to say, I, mean, I, I realize you've got some breadth of business, but um, the Jersey Shore, Long Beach Island, that's a, I imagine that's a, a big part of it. Oh, yeah. No, there, there were uh, significant price increases across all of our markets. They continue to today. The inventory of available homes, whether those are new or, um, or second uh, home purchases, is just uh, it's at the lowest level we've ever seen. So you're seeing price increases that are double-digit increases year over year across every county we do business in, uh, and especially along the shore, where people are figured out they like being along the shore, they like the opportunity to work remotely. And um, as we, you know, return to the office in, in many ways in, in both of our urban environments, people don't expect to be working in the office five days a week. So if you're going to work in the office three days a week, you know, uh, having a primary home down in the Jersey Shore is a really good thing. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of a return? You know, we've seen some recent evidence with companies talking about a return uh, and, uh, to the urban center, to the office. Um, are you seeing things uh, that are demographically distinct? Are you seeing, as you mentioned, people wanting to split time, but are you seeing uh, the beginnings of a pickup at all in any urban centers? We are seeing a pickup. So as I said, we do business in New York and Philadelphia. I'm in those markets regularly. And there was a, a short-lived pickup in the fall before that kind of second surge. And then I think a lot of folks kind of pulled back a little bit. Beginning in, I would say, March of this year, you saw, you know, significant and sustainable increases in the number of people coming back uh, into the urban centers, particularly for work. Um, and in fact, I was in uh, Manhattan this morning, and I think that trend continues. More and more restaurants open, more reasons to be in the city. I think as we, as we get later in the year and see, particularly in New York, the tourist element uh, probably won't be back until Broadway's reopened, until there are... Uh, the opportunities to do the kinds of things that would have drawn people to Manhattan in the past. Uh, but So we see that kind of gradually improving over the course of the summer. Uh, the urban centers are not that busy, usually in, in July and August, uh, but then they'll pick up again, I think, uh, markedly in September. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, uh, time to think about cities and think about the growth or contraction of cities and what's happening there. There's also kind of a chicken and egg element where until some of the services are back, people won't be back, but people won't be back until the services are back. So the restaurants won't open, 
Um, one of the things, though, that's been really interesting when I've looked through banks over the course of the last year is trying to figure out who's got exposure to the most punished parts of the economy, in particular restaurants and, and maybe more lending activity for hotels. What, what have you seen in that business? What, how much exposure have you had and what have you seen happening there? So when we look at the exposure in those businesses, we find it has three different attributes. So the first attribute would be the geography you're in, as you said, you know, say center city. The second attribute would be what kind of property is it? Is it a restaurant? Is it a hotel? But the third attribute would be very much the, um, the target market of that business. So if you think about you know, the three worst things to have would be, you know, a center city hotel that caters to large conferences and business travelers, right? That's a very difficult thing to do. But that doesn't mean hotels are bad. In fact, the hotels in the Jersey Shore have done, you know, just fine. Um, and there are businesses that we've got in all of our markets who've done well, even in, you know, places like Manhattan and Center City, Philadelphia. So I think a little bit is business model. A little bit of it is the, the format of the property and then as well as the location. What we did last year was we did an exhaustive review of our risk uh, to each of those segments and made the decision in the third quarter that we would take any of these high-risk loans that we thought might, dis might um, display weaknesses going forward, and we chose to liquidate a portion of that portfolio. Uh, we completed that in the third and fourth quarter of, of last year. So as a matter of fact, you know, as we look at our portfolio, um, you know, we're very bullish on the, the performance of our loan book. Uh, our customers are doing great. Our delinquencies last quarter were at the third uh, lowest measurement in the, in, in the, on a quarterly basis in the last 10 years. So, you know, it, it's a really solid performance. We're seeing non-performing loans. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The delinquent, delinquent loans were at the lowest level, um, no, the, the third lowest level of the last 40 quarters. Uh, that's fa that's fascinating. Um, and, and you think part of that's just because you kind of jettisoned some of those uh, businesses you didn't want to be exposed to in terms of sort of central city hotels doing conferences. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think the government actions were absolutely helpful and they were appropriate. So there's a lot of liquidity that came into the market. The other thing is the industries that you would expect to be um, challenged in a recession were uh, oddly not challenged this time around. So you didn't have you know, marinas, golf courses, the kinds of things that are more yeah. discretionary, they had a banner year. You can't, you can't find a boat or an RV or a, or a set of golf clubs. And uh, so those, those businesses are doing fine. Talk to me about PPE. Um, I, think that what, I think one of the clever things about PPE uh, was how, uh, and I don't think the Trump administration gets enough credit for it, really, if, if it was indeed their, their conception, how much that shored up banks during this crisis. You know, I think that was an incredibly important program for our economy and to preserve uh, local jobs. So, you know, we were not an SBA lender prior to the PPP program being launched. So in a matter of days, we had to, you know, secure our license and, and get out there and, and resulted in, we were able to make over 3,500 loans, over $500 million distributed, which protected about 60,000 jobs in our community. And, you know, that liquidity was very helpful. Uh, but that was just one aspect of the uh, government actions to, you know, I think the unemployment uh, stipend made a big difference. Um, and I think a series of other things, um, the support for local governments, the support for state governments allowed people to remain employed. And that was a really critical component. And it, it certainly benefited the, the banking industry because of the amount of liquidity and support for people as uh, yeah. who ordinarily would have lost jobs. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I've talked to other um, execs at other banks um, who've said that that brought them customers. It didn't just help them connect to their existing customers and, and really help them out, but it actually brought some new customers in that they think are staying with them. What did you see in terms of that? That was absolutely the case for us. So, you know, in that, in that period of unrest and uncertainty, um, community organizations, regional banks like us are able to move very quickly. By moving quickly and making a deep commitment to the PPP program, not only were we able to disperse a lot of funds, but we found a lot of new customers who were not able to get that decisive and fast response from their bank. And in fact, um, last year in 2020, our deposits increased by $1 billion organically. So that's uh, the significant record uh, beyond anything we've ever done before. And the most significant driver of that was uh, our customers and new customers coming to the bank that you know, really appreciated having a partner and having someone that was responsive and able to meet their needs quickly, right? We didn't, we didn't beat around the bush. Within days, we were, we were one of the first banks taking applications for PPP and one of the first banks in the country that actually dispersed loans for PPP. And that, that made a difference. Yeah, it would seem that uh, it was tasking, however, uh, to have your people themselves all over the place and unable to meet with customers and and powwow in the ways that you might if you were uh, all in the same place at the same time. Oh, yeah, that happened. You know, we had uh, about 600 people that we had to transition to remote work at the exact same time as the PPP program was launching. And we had it uh, at the peak of the, the crisis. We were running our lenders on three shifts, which is not normal in the banking industry, right? We had wow. morning, afternoon, and overnight. Like a factory. And, you were literally yeah. doing like midnight shifts? Oh, yeah. We had a midnight to 8 a.m. shift because you could access the SBA systems uh, really effectively at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. And we just split our group up. And I, I, you know, hats off to our employees. I was so impressed with their level of dedication. So we asked them work from home. We got them equipped. We set up the data lines. And then they were working uh, 24-7 to get those loans dispersed. That's how we um, edged out the largest banks in the country in terms of our performance. That's that's fascinating. What made you think that that was the the way to to run the thing like a factory? You, you know, we were uh, you know you kind of bat your head against the wall trying to find a way to help your clients, and uh, and we made this observation that starting at around six o'clock at night, the SBA systems quieted down and you could get loans through. So there was a there was a uh, early in the crisis there was a data throttle that was an issue with the SBA. Yeah, we realized if you, if you could get them through, you just keep people around. And so we knew we could get, you know, it was some some hours, it might have been just a few dozen loans. You could literally kind of force through the system and be able to get the SBA systems to respond. So once we realized that, we just kind of drew straws and somebody had to stay up all night. And I was going to say, that wasn't the, the straw you want to draw. <laughs> That's right. But it, it's a testament to... I think the spirit of our workforce and uh, and our people really saying, I didn't get any complaints. You know, nobody came back to us and said, you know, hey, boss, it's really hard to work overnight. They were pleased to be able to provide that kind of assistance. They knew jobs were um, were hanging in the in in the, in the crossroads there. Or they're just scared of you. Do you think about that? <laughs> I guess they could be. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't think of myself as scary, but maybe some people would. <laughs> said said uh, every boss ever, or maybe not. <laughs> um, I uh, uh, I also wonder about your embrace. You guys talk a lot in your investor presentations, at least, about your embrace of digital and what digital means. I'll share with you. I was at a financial conference about two years ago, and a bank executive um, talking about kind of what they're trying to do in the banking front and advances in financial technology. 
this guy was saying, we did a survey of our customers. We found that among millennials uh, that a certain percentage, or mo- most of them would rather go and get a root canal than have a regular <laughs> visit to a bank branch. And that requires a big change in, in companies such as yours, whose built business has been built historically on having branches. What oh, are you doing in terms of digital and to grow that digital business? And what and how can you tell if it's working or not? You know, we look at this very much the way the example we use inside the bank is uh, thinking about how Netflix has changed over the years, right? It was a DVD business, but there came that moment when streaming was more important. And that's what their customers were telling them. You know, I want to stream. I don't want to go get a DVD in the mail. Our customers and, and banking customers in general are saying the very same thing. They want to access the bank through their mobile devices. They want to have extended hours of availability. They want to get, um, they want, you know, a convenient payment uh, technologies, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Zelle, Venmo, all of those things. So our customers are telling us that's how they want to do business. So we have got to move our investments and our expenses into uh, those areas where we can service them better. So technology expenses at Ocean First have quadrupled in the last five years. And in fact, the number of people we have in digital banking or IT has increased sixfold over the same time period. That's, that's, uh, I, that sounds like every other business we talk to. I mean, that sounds, that sounds like what we heard from Wendy's early this week when they were talking about their move towards digital. Um, I, I also wonder um, what your thoughts are about, you know, we saw this news out of El Salvador about moving towards Bitcoin. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. know what that means really. But I am curious about how you look at the archaic nature of things like SWIFT, right? Mm-hmm. The ways that banks move money between other banks um, and the potential for digital technologies, not least of which crypto um, and indeed a company that I worked for a little while uh, called Ripple, which uses um, software and uses a cryptocurrency called XRP to help companies, uh, to help banks and financial institutions move money uh, between and betwixt. Uh, at a very high speed with some high accuracy. Do you look at those technologies now or do you just kind of want to wait and see how that all shakes out? Well, there, there's no question. You have to be looking at all of those technologies. And if, if you think about it in the broader paradigm, electronic funds transfer has been growing in leaps and bounds for, for decades now, right? ACH, wires, all of that. Right. We, sit, we, we transmit billions of dollars each and every month across electronic uh, methods. And we've got Apple Pay and Google Pay and all of that. I think when you think about the payments uh, strategy a bank like us needs to have, the most important thing is you need to have every payment method that your customers are going to expect. So you need to have Venmo, you need to have Zelle, you need to have each of these things. As it relates to cryptocurrency and, and things like Bitcoin, uh, you know we view that as an opportunity for, I think you're going to see it in commercial first. You're going to see uh, large dollar, highly complex transactions are worth the time and energy to settle in a cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. So you could imagine commercial real estate transactions would be ideally suited to blockchain technology, where it's really important that the money transfer to the right parties and that you've got you know, visibility of the recording. Sure. Um, and, it, and that it happens quickly. I mean, I don't think people realize how, uh, I use the word archaic, how archaic the system is right now for moving money between parties, how many days it takes, how many errors there right. are. Um, it's it's ridiculous, even I do in think the first we, world. Oh, yeah, no, no question. I, uh, we do have high hopes for the Federal Reserve's real-time payments uh, program as well. and uh, But I think you got to look at this as a, as a quilt or mosaic of approaches where 
you better be able to settle a, a complex commercial real estate transaction and allow your customers to kind of split a bar tab or, you know, do what they need to do. And, and you're going to have different technologies will be suitable for each of those transactions. Uh, so you have to play in all areas. You know, the, the, the value we provide to our customers is being at the nexus of all their transactions. And so if, you're, if you don't offer those payments, you won't be. Well, those large volume, big money transactions, in my case, often is splitting the bar tab. <laughs> Forget about what happens there on the Jersey Shore. Uh, uh, Chris, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, such an interesting company in Ocean First. Um, and we appreciate you taking some time uh, here to describe your business uh, to us. It's Chris Mara, the CEO of Ocean First. Well, up next on the drill down to bite that one number that tells us a whole lot. Uh, Chris talked about how their um, loans are doing, well, the non-performing loans at the end of 2020, fiscal year 2020, was only 0.47%. So how does that compare, that, that uh, drill down bite, how does that compare to the rest of the, the nation's banks and their non-performing loan ratio? We'll have that percentage after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're listening to us every day. You can make that a lot easier by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Pandora. We don't care. As long as you're listening every day, we're trying to give you the business news you want to hear. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with that one number that means a whole lot, the drill down bite. Well, I mentioned that uh, Ocean First ended 2020 with a 0.47 non-performing loan uh, uh, percentage. Well, for the average U.S. bank, it was 1.63%, significantly higher um, across the entire nation. So clearly these guys are getting their underwriting right, Isaac. Yeah, it sounded like it. That was a great conversation. All right. Well, thank you for joining The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.